Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer now. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit right now you would be our vision as we just prayed to you in song. I pray that we would see the world through the lens that you have given us, your word. And that we would have our hearts stirred by your spirit to love your son more for who he is and for what he's done. Father, as many preachers have said, we speak as dying men to dying men and women. We are all dying. We will all die one day unless you return. Life is so short in view of eternity. Help us to live in the light of eternity with the light of the risen sun shining on our way. Help us to remember Jesus Christ as a result of looking at his words today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, um, or you've got a pew Bible, you can open up to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 11. So you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Numbers 11. And we'll be focusing on that chapter this morning. But before we dive into Numbers, I want to set the stage this way. Have you ever had to carry something really heavy for a long time? Yesterday, the chainsaw didn't feel very heavy at the beginning of the morning. But by about, I don't know, four hours later, that's a really heavy chainsaw. (laughs) Um, Carrying a heavy burden is hard, especially for a long time. I've heard people say if you shoot a bear way back in the woods, it's the worst thing to drag out. My grandma Aubrey has a a black and white photo from around the turn of the century. um, And some of her uncles are way back in the Adirondacks and they have this black bear, huge thing, strung between this long pole. And there's like, I don't know, five or six of them carrying it out. So that's why they say many hands make light work, right? You would not want to bear the burden of that bear out of the Adirondacks all by yourself. You wouldn't be able to do it. Now, you may remember when we were working our way through the book of Exodus, maybe a couple months ago, I forget the exact date, um, but we read about something being too heavy for Moses, too much of a burden for him to bear. Back in Exodus chapter 18... You can peek there if you've got a Bible and you want. Uh, Back in Exodus 18, uh, Moses' father-in-law, a man named Jethro, also known as Hobab. I think I prefer the name Jethro. How about you? Uh, Reminds me of some southern name, right? Jethro. He saw how the people of Israel, they were coming to Moses night and day with all their problems and fights and quarrels. And Moses felt like parents do on a day when the kids just can't seem to get along and they keep coming he did this she did that fix it make him make him be nice to me make her love me Moses felt like that times a million people or more 
The Israelites were coming to him. And Jethro sees this situation and he says in in Exodus 18, verse 18, he says, You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out. Like parents after an exhausting day, times a million. (laughs) You're going to wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. So Jethro's solution back in Exodus 18, you may remember, his solution is to get a bunch of men who are trustworthy. And they know right from wrong. And he gets these men to help him deal with all of the cases that he keeps getting bombarded with. All the squabbles the Israelites are having. And they're to bring only the hardest cases to Moses. A lot of preachers like to go here for like leadership lessons from Exodus or something like that. You need help. That's not really the point, the big point of this story. Because we'll see in a minute, it doesn't work um, in numbers. Regardless, these people, the reason that it's too heavy of a burden is because... They're not keeping the law. They're sinning left and right in Exodus 18. But a couple chapters later, Exodus 20, they get God's law in its full from Mount Sinai. And they're there for a whole year getting the law. Now they have right and wrong all spelled out for them. They know how God wants them to live. So things are going to be a lot better now, right? Now that they know the rules. Wrong. We saw that last week. But in Numbers chapter 11, where we're looking at today, remember one year has passed since they came to Sinai, and we're about to see that Israel has scarcely left Mount Sinai, and they again become too heavy of a burden for Moses. Too heavy for Moses to bear, just like back in Exodus 18. Apparently, having men to help isn't working. Now last week, we talked a little bit about how There's four grumbling and sin stories in Exodus and four of the exact same types of sins after in the book of Numbers. Exodus has four stories about grumbling and sin and Sabbath breaking. Numbers, chapter 11 to chapter 20, has four stories of grumbling and sin and Sabbath breaking. And and they're, they're showing, these similar stories are showing that before the mountain and after the mountain... The, the, the law didn't fix what was wrong with the people. And, and this is the same parallel that we have here in Numbers today, in chapter 11. They're too heavy before the law in, Numbers, in Exodus 18. And after the law, you think, oh, all the problems are solved. They've got the rules. They're going to be good. No. They're too heavy after the law. They're still too heavy for Moses to bear. Help, having men to help didn't help in the long run. And so... In our story this morning, when we learn that Israel is heavy again, God, we're going to see, gives Moses the solution to heaviness. The solution is men who are filled by the Spirit. What I'd like to do next, though, is walk through Numbers chapter 11 and give you the structure. I'm not going to read the whole chapter out at front. I'll I'll work through Numbers, give you the structure, work through Numbers 11, And then we'll circle back and look at three main things that happen. So, Numbers 11, um, big picture, there's three parallels, uh, two parallel stories in Numbers 11. Two parallel stories where three things happen. Two stories, three things happen in each story. Three main things, okay? 
Here's those three main things that happen in each story. Israel grumbles, Israel is punished, and Moses prays to the Lord on behalf of Israel. Now, the first series of grumbling and judgment and prayer, it only takes three verses. It's quick. The second account of grumbling and judgment and prayer, it starts in verse 4 and it goes to the end of the chapter. So the order is slightly different, though, in the second story. The first, in, that, in the second story, there's the grumbling. Then Moses goes to the Lord in prayer, and we learn about God's prayer request, answering his request. And then at the end of the passage, in the last verses, the judgment falls. So in the middle, where Moses prays, we'll see the Lord promise two things and send two things. He promises the Spirit, and he sends the Spirit. He promises meat, and he sends meat. And then judgment comes. So we'll get into that in a few minutes. So again, remember the big structure. There's two accounts of grumbling where Israel's judged for their sins and Moses cries out to the Lord. That's the structure of chapter 11. So let's look at the first series. Numbers 11, verse 1. Now the people complained or grumbled about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. Second, judgment falls. Verse 1. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Third, Moses prays to the Lord. Verse 2. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So that place was called Tibera because fire from the Lord had burned among them. Grumbling in Exodus 16, the same kind of grumbling was met with God, you know, not with judgment. God did not punish the people, He warned them. But after the law is given, punishment. Paul says, and we looked at this last week, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And you see that in Numbers at the at the end of chapter 11. We're getting there. I don't want to get ahead. But we, we, I don't want to hit it again because I think most of you were here last week. We saw very clearly before Sinai, four sins that weren't judged with death. After Sinai, the four, same four sins are punished with death. The letter kills. But, Numbers 11, the Spirit brings life. You'd think Paul was reading his Old Testament when he says, some, says things like this, right? So, we've seen the first round in the first three verses. A threefold pattern for what happens in verses 4 to 35. So we'll start with verses 4 to 9. We'll see the people grumble against the Lord again. The rabble with them. Now this, the rabble, this is kind of this mixed multitude of people who came up with them from Egypt. We're not really sure what their identity was. They might have been Egyptians. They might have been Moabites. That mingled. We don't really know who they were, but they came up. The rabble began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing. So they got everybody riled up. If we had meat to eat, if only we had meat to eat, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Free fish, because you were slaves. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. All those cucumber sandwiches. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. And then Moses inserts a little um, explanation for us. The manna was like coriander seed, whatever that is, and looked like resin. 
The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves, and it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. So the people are grumbling about their manna from the Lord. Second, we see that judgment falls. That's at the end of the chapter. So I'm just going to skip to the end really quick and read about the judgment that comes on the people for grumbling. God sends them meat, but verse 33, While the meat was still between their teeth, and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore the place was named Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had craved other food. From Kibroth Hatava, the people traveled to Hezeroth and stayed there. And in between this grumbling and the judgment that we see at the end, we get the heart of today's story. Moses cries to the Lord, basically saying, like we already talked about, the people are too heavy. And the Lord answers by promising two things. First, to send his spirit to help with the burden. And second, to send meat. And then we'll read where he sends both things that he promises. He gives some men what all the people need. The Spirit. And he gives everyone what they think they need. Meat. So again, catch that. He gives some men, the 70 leaders of Israel, temporarily it seems, he puts the Spirit on them, indicating what they really need. Not what they're asking for, but what they need is the Spirit. And then he gives everybody what they think they need, which is meat, And the gift of the Spirit leads to God's word being in the mouths of the men where it needs to be. They prophesy. But what the people crave, what they think they need, leads to death as soon as it gets in their mouths. They don't need meat in their mouths. They need the word of God there. And the only way it will get there is by the Holy Spirit, not the law. And that's where we're headed. So third... Moses cries out to God. So we kind of bumped the judgment up just to see the parallel. They grumble, they're judged at the end. But in the middle, third thing to see is that Moses cries to the Lord. Verse 10. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. You ever heard a couple million people wailing in the desert? I I don't know if they were all wailing, but a lot of them. And the Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes, and do not let me face my own ruin. Moses is borderline charging God with wrongdoing here. But what a burden he's bearing. He'd rather die than go on leading this crazy band of rebels. 
who are all wailing like babies. We want better food. I don't know if you ever sat at a table where kids are complaining for food, right? You imagine grown-ups now rejecting the food that God has miraculously provided and everyone wailing. Moses can't fix the problem. And yet they're crumbling to him. And he's like, God, why did you put me in this situation? I'd rather die. Verse 16, we see the Lord's answer. First, he promises the Spirit. He says to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with them there, or with you there, and I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and I'll put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. The Spirit of God will rest on the leaders and they will help Moses bear the burden. Just like Exodus 18, with one important difference. The Spirit is given. So here, God deals with Moses' greatest need. Help with the burden of sin. But now God turns to what the people think they need. Meat. Meat is promised. Verse 18 God's still speaking with Moses, and he gives him this message for the people. Tell the people this. Consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day, or two days, or five, or twenty days, but for a whole month. Until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. Did you catch that? The very heart of their sin is right here. You have rejected the Lord. And the message goes on for them. And you've wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? And now Moses gives a little pushback to the Lord. Remember in the Gospels how Jesus is in the wilderness with his disciples and this huge crowd comes to them and it's been a while and they're hungry and and they're listening to him. There's 5,000 people and and, and 5,000 men in addition to women and children. And Jesus tells the disciples, like, you feed them. And the disciples are like, where are we going to get food for these people? This is exactly what's happening here. Moses is like, where am I going to get food for all these people? Where, where is the meat going to come from? Verse 21. Moses said, here am I among 600,000 men on foot. And you say, I will give them meat for a whole month? Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? Again, here's Moses' unbelief talking here. How much different is Jesus, the new Moses, right? Who gives fish and bread in the desert miraculously. Jesus prays to his father and feeds the nation in the desert. But Moses, I can't do it. There's 600,000 men in addition to women and children. I can't feed them. And the Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? 
I can't reach down and help my people. My arm's too short. I got a problem. Somebody give me an arm extension. No. The Lord's arm is not too short. Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. And so now we're going to see the two promises of the Lord fulfilled. The first results in God's word in the mouths of God's people. The second results in meat in the mouths of the people. The first leads to God's word being spoken. The second leads to death. What they think they need kills them. The spirit is what they really need. So first, they see the spirit given. Verse 25. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him, Moses, and took some of the power of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but they did not go out to the tent. I don't know, maybe they were sleeping in. Maybe they didn't get the, mess, the memo. And yet, we see that the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? In other words, this isn't a competition like who can be more connected with God. Uh, and then he says in verse 29, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Not just 70 men. I wish that everybody would have the Holy Spirit. All the people from the least to the greatest. We'll circle back to that in a few minutes. God does just this under the new covenant. He pours out his spirit on all the people, all of us, if we trust Jesus. We'll get there. But notice, again, Moses wants the spirit to be on everybody. That would be the ultimate solution to the problem of the heaviness of the sin. That's the solution, the spirit. Now let's look at the second thing the Lord gives. Meat in verses 31 and 32. Now a wind went up from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It was scattered, it scattered them up to two cubits. That's like three feet deep, all around the camp. So you have a blizzard of, of quail, okay? That literally snows. I mean, they, all the quail in the Middle East, they, they would go to the, the sea. I mean, historians have kind of tried to figure out exactly what might have been going on here. Are these like miraculous quail that God, you know, created? Or what, you know, what's going on here? Regardless, all the quail that usually went to the cool of the sea, they, they get blown in and they all land in the Israelites' camp. And all that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than 10 omers. That's like 25 pounds of meat per person. Then they spread them all out around the camp, probably to, to dry them. Because you didn't have refrigerators back then. You got to dry this meat quick, salt it. Somebody get it in the Dead Sea. And then, as we looked at earlier, they tore into the meat 
and a plague came upon them. This time we don't see Moses praying for them. He's already done that. They wanted meat, not the Lord. And so they bury those who had the craving. And it seems this wasn't everybody, but the rabble, the, the ringleaders, those who had the craving, those who got this whole thing started. They got what they wanted, what they thought they needed, and it led to death. Just like Eve in the garden, reaching for the fruit, getting the food she thinks she needs for happiness, and it leads to death. It's a pattern we see again and again. And so now we've worked our way through the story, and I want to circle back and make three observations that apply to each of our lives. We'll start by looking at the heart of grumbling, the heart of grumbling. Then we'll examine the severity of God's judgment. And third and finally, we're going to look at God's solution to the burden of sin, the Holy Spirit. So first, the heart of grumbling. How many of you, if you really are honest, think about it, how many of you would be sick of eating the same meal every day for the rest of your life? You think about it. Even if it was a meal that you liked. One time when I was in college, I, I've told a few of this sto- you this story, but um, I had to be, the student dining room was going to be closed over spring break and I was working, so I, I made up, I think, close to 200 tacos. Two for breakfast, two for lunch, two for supper for like oh, three weeks. And um, I ate them. I didn't have a roommate, so it was okay. I might have been a little smelly, but things were okay. And I was a little sick of tacos by the end, I'll be honest. Uh, but it was the same meal. Can imagine doing that for the rest of my life? I, I can't really imagine. Let's say it was guaranteed. You'd have a free meal. It would always be the same. It would always be free. And it would be miraculously provided for you. You wouldn't have to work for it. I think about it. Why, why do I have such a hard time with this? I think there would be millions of people around the world right now. Sign me up! I haven't eaten anything in a few days. I, I would give anything for a free meal. People in war-torn countries, refugees. I mean, think about it. A free meal, I don't care if it's the same. I've been eating dirt in South Sudan. I would be grateful for a taco every day for three weeks, for the rest of my life. If only I could have food and not see my children starve. I think the reason we in America struggle with this is because we've tasted Egypt. We've had those cucumbers. Those melons. We've had the cheeseburgers and the pizza. And on and on it goes. And we come to expect it. And if we're honest, I think we would not be content with the same meal every day. We'd complain. We feel we're entitled to something more. And yet, why? I've been really thinking about this. Why? Do we feel we're entitled to something more, something better? See, ingratitude, ungratefulness, it starts with the feeling of entitlement in our hearts. A feeling that we deserve something we don't have. Or something that we used to have, but lost. Or something that we see others have and feel that we have, we should have 
Two, entitlement. It's the feeling that I'm worthy of something or worthy of keeping something. Entitlement says to God, listen, God, if I were running the show, then I would give such a hardworking, outstanding human specimen like myself more of the blessings of this world than you've given me. Or at least a little, you know, a little more than I currently have. And when we don't get what we think we need or what we think we deserve or what we think we want, when the cravings of our hearts aren't satisfied by what God has given us, we grumble. Even if we don't verbalize it, we grumble in our hearts. We might even reject the Lord and go looking for false saviors, false gods, who promise to deliver what the Lord himself won't give us. For a price, of course. Your soul. That's what Jesus says. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? The devil offers the world, but we have to forfeit our own souls. Grumbling is deadly. It's unbelief put to music. A grumbling and discontent and entitled heart left to itself, unrepented of, actually leads to outright rejection of the Lord. And the temptation to grumble, at least for my own life, is, is constant. And so we've got to constantly fight it. Constantly repent. What makes grumbling so hard to fight, I think, is that we don't realize we're doing it. We complain about the weather. I do. I struggle. I struggled this spring with all the rain. And we don't even realize we're doing it. We complain about the weather, but it's God who sends the rain and the snow. We complain about the heat, but it's God who designed the world with its seasons of hot and cold. We complain about the sins of others and their weaknesses and failings and how they frustrate and annoy us. And yet they too are made in the image of God. And we also struggle with many sins, some of them the same. They just look different. And God has placed these people in our lives to learn, for us to learn how to love, even when it's hard. And yet we complain, oh, why do I have to work with such losers? God's always working to transform us to live and love like Jesus. In every situation, in any and every situation we face, he is working. He's working to destroy our unbelief and to increase our gratitude in him and our trust in him and our love for him and for others. And God, he is at war against our pride with that feeling in our hearts that we deserve more, that we deserve better. And that we've earned a different slot in life than we've been given. In fact, that's exactly why God gave the Israelites manna in the desert for so long. He was after their pride. Listen to Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 3 to 5. Moses says this, He, God, humbled you and let you hunger. He let you get hungry, Israel. And then fed you with manna, which you did not know. What is it? That's what manna means. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your fit did not swell these 40 years. 40 years and they had the same sets of clothes. Why? 
Where are you going to get clothes in the desert? God provided. Why? Know then that in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. God was disciplining Israel in the desert, training them, teaching them through hunger and through manna that everything they had they got from the words of his mouth. Their wilderness experiences were designed to humble them. They couldn't depend on their skill to go out and find food. There was none. Only the manna that their good and faithful God would send every single morning. But grumbling, it always starts when we lose sight of the goodness of God. Discontent, that restless feeling in our hearts that fuels our craving for the meat, for the things that we don't have, even while we're literally surrounded by the manna of a good God. Friends, at this point in our story, Israel as a nation, they've been swimming in an ocean of God's mercy towards them. Even as they are in the desert, God had rescued them from terrible slavery in Egypt. He provided food and water for them in the desert again and again. He spared their lives when they grumbled and rebelled against him and broke his covenant and made another god, a calf idol, to worship. Most of them lived through that. God's kindness to Israel is incredible. And he has also given them his promises, his sure promises that he made years before with Abraham, that they're headed to a promised land, a beautiful land. And finally, God has made a way to dwell in the midst of this stubborn people by giving them the tabernacle, despite their near-constant state of sinfulness and uncleanness as a nation. He's done all that for them, and he's done all that and more for you and I. He has delivered you and I from the slavery to sin. He's provided forgiveness for us through Jesus and so many countless graces through our lives of food, of clothing, of shelter, of people that care about us and pray for us and on and on. And he's forgiven us of sins that we continue to struggle with. And you'd think you'd get it, but you don't. And you keep going back and having to repent. And he's forgiven us again and again. And he's given us grace for times when we've really blown it. And he's promised to be with us through his spirit, just like he was with Israel. Not just in our midst, in a temple, but within us, in our hearts, in our church. We are the temple of the living God. And finally, he's sworn by himself to bring us into his promised eternal rest, into the inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade, that's kept in heaven for us. He's given us all these promises into the new creation. It's infinitely better than anything we could ask or think or imagine. We have all this, and yet for all of it, we still struggle to trust. It is a daily battle. And yet, we see in our story something really sobering as well. For all of God's goodness and grace, he is also a consuming fire. Remember the beginning of the passage in verse 2? The people complained, and the outskirts of the camp were consumed. We saw that in Leviticus chapter 10, when Nadab and Abihu waltz into the Holy of Holies with their censers, unsummoned and probably drunk. And they're consumed by fire. 
And then we get instructions on the Day of Atonement. This is how you do it. This is how you approach me. Our God is a consuming fire. When the famous Christian author C.S. Lewis described his Jesus-like figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, this lion called Aslan, he, someone asked, is, is, is he safe? Is he quite safe? And, and Lewis says, he's not safe, but he's good. Jesus is good, but he's not quite safe. Darkness is not safe in the presence of light. You flip the lights on, darkness goes. It dies. Wood is not safe in the presence of a raging fire. Sand is not safe or stable in the presence of a flood of water. The judgment of God is like a flood for all who have built their lives on the sands of this world. Those who choose to live in darkness are not safe before the presence of the God who says, I am the light of the world. I want us to remember together for a moment that though God is good, his judgment is severe on darkness, on evil. It's not something that's popular to talk about today. It was actually quite popular to talk about a thousand years ago. A thousand years ago, in a context where people thought about their pagan gods as always angry, a god who had wrath against human evil was a no-brainer. Everybody accepted it. It was the love and mercy of God that was a real head-scratcher. But in our modern age of tolerance and acceptance and anything goes, we find the concept of a God who judges evil to be appalling. But we must not. We must retrain our minds to not be appalled by God's justice against human evil. I have to do this constantly retraining my mind to view the world and to view sin and view my own sin through the lens of the word of God, not through the way that I've been shaped and fashioned by my culture. We must retrain our minds by constant immersion in the Bible to grow accustomed to the idea that sin deserves punishment. Otherwise, the Bible will make no sense. That doesn't mean we don't wrestle with the truths of the Bible. Every generation wrestles with different truths in the Bible. Like I said, a thousand years ago, they might have been wrestling with the love of God and the justification of God that comes for free apart from works. Now, we think, of course God justifies us. That's his job. Of course God loves us. That's his job. We take it for granted. But we must retrain our minds. God hates sin. Our kids are going through a catechism. Um, we do it most nights that we can. And, and the question about sin, what is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world he created. Not being or doing what he requires in his commands and law. The heart of sin, rejecting God. We saw that in our passage today. Israel was doing that. That's what grumbling is. It's what all sin is. Rejecting the God who gives life. And God hates it. 
It's at the heart of evil. I see on social media quite often, or on the news, statements like this. There's too much hate in the world. And in one sense, I think, yeah, there's a lot of hate, wrong, wrong hate in the world. But I always cringe because it feels like that statement's so vague. There's just too much hate out there. If there was just more love, that's what the world needs, more love. We are made in the image of God and we are commanded to hate things. Romans 12, 9, hate what is evil. Do you hate rape? Pornography? Do you hate drugs and how they destroy the lives of humans made in God's image? And how they rip apart homes? Do you hate it? Do you hate unfaithfulness? And what it does to marriages and to children? Do you hate it? Do you hate sexual immorality? All sexual immorality. Not just the kinds like pedophilia that our culture really freaks out about. But all kinds. Do you hate it? Do you hate how it distorts the good gifts that God has given? Even more importantly though. Do you hate your own lust? Do you hate your anger? Do you hate your pride? Do you loathe pride? Despise it? Wherever it shows itself into your life, do you want to kill it? That high-mindedness that makes you feel twistedly good when someone else does or says something that you'd never do or say. That feeling that you're better, harder working, more smart, more worthy. Do you hate selfishness? Just need some me time right now. Do you hate how slow you are to love others? I do. And God does too. He hates our sin. And he is utterly devoted to overcoming it. In the world and in your life, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Finally, do you hate the grumbles in your heart? Do you hate your discontent? Are you discontent with your discontent? Does it bother you? Do you want it to die and be replaced by faith? One day, take heart. One day, Christian, this is for you. It will be. Everything dark within us will be consumed one day when Jesus returns. And we are raised with new life in perfection. Holy and blameless before him in love. But even now, God is at war within us, against us against the sinful parts of us that want to keep rising their ugly heads in our hearts and tug us back to the slavery we left, to the Egypt we've come out of. We don't want to go back there. Egypt's got a lot of perks, but you know what? In the end, it's slavery and darkness. One day... 
when Jesus returns, there will be nothing left to hate in this world. Right now, we are called to hate. We're called to hate evil and to be devoted to what is good, both in our lives and for our neighbors and to the ends of the earth. But one day, there will be nothing left to hate. All that is evil and dark and the wicked and Satan and all his angels, they will be exiled by their own choice in rejecting the king who offers pardon. They will be exiled away from the new creation to a place the Bible calls hell. But by God's spirit, even now, he's forming a people, day by day, who are being transformed. Transformed through the sufferings of this world to hate evil and to love what is good through faith. And that brings us to the third and final takeaway for the morning. God's solution to the heaviness of sin. In Numbers 11, God sends his spirit to rest on the 70 elders of Israel so that they will be able to help Moses deal with the heaviness and the grumbling of the people of Israel. The fact that these elders only prophesied for a little while it indicates that the solution wasn't a lasting solution here. It was just a hint of what would one day be universal for all God's children. One day the Lord would pour out his spirit on everyone who trusts in Jesus. Moses longed for this day. Look at Numbers eleven twenty nine again. Would that all, oh, that all the Lord's people would be prophets, would have God's word in their mouths, would know the word, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Oh, that they would have it. The prophet Ezekiel, writing many years later, tells of a day when God would do just what Moses longed for. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. God says, I will give you Israel, a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. Another prophet, the Hebrew prophet Joel, good name, goes on and he tells that this outpouring on Israel in Joel 2.28, it won't just be for the Israelites. He says, in the last days, after that, uh, in the days of restoration, when God restores his people Israel, he says, it will come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Not just Jews. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Joel 2.32, will be saved. This will happen when Jesus comes. It's what happens when someone is born again through faith in the Lord Jesus, they get a new and a cleansed heart. They're washed clean by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, he takes up residence in us. He doesn't just rest upon us. He actually dwells in us. God takes what was in the tabernacle and puts it in the people. It's amazing. And they get a new, clean heart. As Paul says in Romans 5, verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. And so, friends, if you trust Jesus, that means that the Spirit of the risen Christ is within you, leading you daily to go to war against you, against everything that belonged to the old you. Every 
impulse in your heart to turn from something you know God calls sin is from the Spirit. Don't quench it. Listen to the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. We're in a war. The Christian life, the more that I live, and I'm only 31 and I'm more convinced than ever that the Christian life is war. And if it doesn't feel like a war, you are in danger. Because where the waters look calm, the sin in your life is deep. Christians, life is a war. Pride is deep. We look to our king to root it out. And one day, he'll finish the job. And until that day, we fight. We fight every prompting you've ever had to love sacrificially for God's sake. It's from the Spirit. The Spirit convicts us of sin. He empowers us to love, to truly love God from the heart. Even though it's imperfect and filled with mistakes, every true impulse to love someone that is our enemy, that's hard to love, is from God. It's from the Spirit because God in Christ has loved us even while we were still His enemies. That kind of love can only be put there from outside of you. It does not come within. It is natural to love your neighbor, to love people that are nice to you, to love likable people. It is not natural. It is supernatural to love your enemies like Jesus. And the Spirit does that kind of work. It is amazing. He helps us to love truly with patience and kindness and goodness and self-control, even for our enemies. And he helps us understand and apply the Bible to our lives. And he helps us acquire a taste, a hunger for the word. Where before we trusted Jesus, there was none. And the Spirit works to produce unity in families and unity in the church. And the Spirit brings peace even when our lives feel chaotic. And the Spirit helps us in our weakness, even praying for us. We could go on and on of all the good that the Spirit does. Ultimately, the Spirit is the Spirit of the risen Lord Jesus dwelling in our hearts. Jesus is with us always, even to the end of the age, by His Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for sending your Spirit. I thank you that though we fight sin, we are not alone in it. That we have your spirit within us. Helping us. Lord, please help us to hate our sin more today than we did walking in. And I pray that we long for deliverance from this battle with the flesh. That we would look to the day that you return. And our bodies, our flesh is completely done away with. And we receive resurrection bodies and we live with our King and the new creation. We long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen.